Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by Brian Schmidt, our newest host, who's almost at the one-year mark. Almost there. Almost one year old. Oh, my goodness. Almost into my terrible twos. Not quite oh there yet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, and typically, we're joined by Gun Do- Guy, Dun- Gun. Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Uh, but he's actually uh, taking a little personal time today, so uh, he'll be back on the next episode. Uh, this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon account. Right now, we have one level, and we are simply asking for a small donation just to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife. Thank you, and we sincerely hope you give us your support. And stay tuned to the end of the show where we get to hear about what each of us have going on in our own shops. All right. With that, Brian, you got the first question since, well, I'm only the only other person. I can't introduce <laughs> by, my own question. By process of elimination, I will take the first question. <laughs> this uh, question comes from Jose E. And Jose says, hi, all hobbyist woodworker working out of his one and a half car garage. It doesn't quite fit two cars. And I share it with house storage stuff. Mobility has been a key for me when working. One thing I struggle with is that my garage floor is not level. There's two different angles and it can be an issue at times. For example, my small outfeed table can't be level with my worksite table saw because at times they may not line up. My workbench is in a fixed location but can't hold anything around as it might roll off if I have to use it. Any advice for my workshop woes or any sort of leveling feat you might recommend? Since I move things around, leveling a tool or table each time I use it can be a pain. Lifting the end of the workbench doesn't seem to create stability when I am hand planing or wood chiseling. Thanks, Jose. Um, So I have, Jose, I can can relate because in my uh, basement workshop, which is just concrete foundation floor and it's a shared space with our utilities and our sump pit in particular has a... uh, declining slope towards the sump pit in in one corner of my shop and it is also the corner where um i'll be positioning my outfeed table uh whenever i've whenever i'm moving it over there yeah um to to deal with that i have marked off on my workshop floor exactly where i want my table saw positioned when I'm gonna mm-hmm. when I'm gonna use it because I move it around, it's on a mobile base cabinet yeah. saw, and I've just marked off exactly um, where I need both of the front two wheels to rest when I lower it into position, so that I get consistent positioning with it every single time. So that way, knowing that even though the table saw is mobile, I get it back into the same spot. Then I can do kind of the same thing with my outfeed table, and it's on casters and I get it in position and it would otherwise tip towards the sump pit and leave that front corner up higher than the level of the table saw. But I just have a, I just have a shim that I'll magnetize to the, like I'll, I'll have it on a magnet normally just when the outfeed table isn't in that place. And I will basically just pull it off and it's the perfect size to level out that table just the way I need it. So if, if you're moving things around, but you can return to the same location uh, to do whatever that, you know, in your outfeed table, that table saw operation, um, that's one way to do it. And that way you're not having to fidget with it uh, every single time. 
Right. And right. You get some consistency there. Um, we, what, what, what perspective uh, can you add to Jose's question? So while I have not had the same issues of unlevelingness, is that a word, as Jose, or unevenness, yeah. sure, uh, unevenness as Jose does, or for, for that matter, for you, uh, having mm-hmm. the, the uh, drain in the center of your floor, um, my, my floor, and I, I don't know many folks that have perfectly level floors and yeah. by, by their nature, by garage door, garage floor nature, right? You want a slight slope to go towards mm-hmm. the garage door so that, you know, if you do have any water or any flooding that happens, yeah, um, it just flows out. out. Yeah. If, like for instance, I think um, the overflow for my water actually does go in the garage. So like, for instance, like if for whatever reason, the, uh, my washer overflows, mm-hmm. the overflow will actually go into underneath the, uh, the wall and go into the garage and drain into the garage and then drain out, out, out of the house. Um, that was by design. Um, so, so we don't, I don't have nearly the same amount of unevenness as you or Jose, uh, but I do mark out specific with a Sharpie the feet of all of my tools so that when and if, and it's very rare that I do have to move some of my bigger tools like my CNC, my planer, jo- my joiner planer, mm-hmm. uh, my table saw, router table, and my bandsaw really don't need to be moved. Now, I have a mobile base for my bandsaw, and I have, I believe I have the Jet mobile base. Okay. And... I've used two, uh, the Workmate, is it Workmate or the, I can't remember. Or is it the Bora Portamate? It might be the Portamate and that's pretty good, but the Jet ones are really good. They're like a little bit more robust. So that's the one that I got for my bandsaw. For my scroll saw, which I use so often, sarcastically stating, (laughs) (laughs) is the Portamate. And I think that's rated for something like 150 pounds or I, I can't remember. It's, it's, yeah. it's well below what the rating is necessary for my, um, my scroll saw because, you know, I use that so often. Um, but I do mark out with a Sharpie all those bigger tools. And then specifically the tools that do roll around. So, for instance, like outfeed type tools, outfeed rollers and things like that. I have specific spots that I know are level that I can put those outfeed tools uh, for like my uh, bandsaw, my joiner planer. And, and those are marked out exactly where they need to be as well. And they're all leveled because those tools have leveling feet. Now, in terms of things that he can use, so my CNC and my multifunctional outfeed assembly table have what are called the Footmaster leveling casters. They they ain't cheap. They're somewhere around, I think I got them at $25 a, a caster, and that was that's pretty good. Uh, okay. I think they're now somewhere around $30 or $35. Would you say those would you say those are called? They're they're called Footmaster leveling casters. And they can support a significant amount of weight, and they have a rubber foot on the back of them that you can lower that rubber foot and level out your tools. And I use that for my CNC and for my Mm. multifunctional outfit assembly table. Now, that being said, once you level them, 
they're not it it's kind of a chore right like because you have yeah. to go in there and you got to turn this little dial on the back of it and you gotta keep turning until it advances down that little tiny foot and that foot doesn't advance very quickly you know you have to turn 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 yeah. and um and you also have to make sure that it's making good solid contact with the ground so sometimes you have to really crank on that back of that caster in order to lower that that leveling foot all that to say that i don't know of an easier form of a caster now there is one other type of caster that i know of that has a foot that lowers with um uh with a pedal uh, the problem with that is I, I don't think it's the same issue, right? Like you can lift it up and, and down easier, but leveling it is still kind of a chore. Um, but if you know, like, like you and I do, if you know where exactly it's going to be, and I can't remember the name of that caster because I looked into it, but if you know exactly where it's going to be every single time, then yeah. it makes the mobility easier because, now it, it's just a, a click of the um, the foot lever to raise and lower. And I can't remember the, the name of it. It's it's like a normal caster, but then on the back of it is a lever that attaches to uh, a leveling foot that you depress and it just lifts up off of the um, off of the caster. Gotcha. I, Jose, I can't for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. And um, but but they're out there. Those are also pricey. I went with the Footmaster because I decided that my assembly table and my CNC machine really weren't going to move that much. So there you go. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Jose, hope that helps. Uh, I've got the next question. This is from Liam. This is an interesting question. Liam Farrell is actually a loyal listener, and uh, he's very grateful because uh, for all the information that we were able to, we've been able to share over the years, I have a finishing question for you. I make wood fishing nets for family and friends and might want to make a business of it. I have been using spar varnish as a finish, which looks great, but is a pain to apply. I brush it on. It takes forever to dry and always seems to be a bit soft, even when fully dry. Is there an alternative finish I could consider that would be easy to apply? I'm willing to invest in a spray system to, to up my finish game, so that's not a limitation. Important to note is that I use walnut in all of my nets. In episode 115, I learned that walnut will turn orange in the sun, something I didn't know. So will the suggested finish have UV protection or will I need to dye the walnut to ensure it maintains its brown color after sitting on the bottom of a boat for many seasons? Thanks again for spending your precious time educating the less knowledgeable. Liam from Indianapolis. Well, there you go. An Indianapolis native, it sounds like. There we go. Um, Naptown. So, okay. So there are, I looked into this and I will say, Liam, I have absolutely zero experience with either of these, either of these products, but I want to at least give you some options to look into. And personally, what I found is that from, from my research is that spray finishes generally are not the or excuse me, waterproof finishes are generally not the best to spray on because they tend to be a high viscosity. In other words, they're just very thick, very viscous, and they're not the easiest to atomize through uh, a nozzle spray gun. So what I believe are the easiest finishes to apply are the ones that are waterproof 
and in your case, what you want is UV protection as well, are going to be either brushed on or rubbed on. And the two that I know of that, uh, actually there are three, but I'll leave some meat in the bones, see if you have anything. And if, and if not, Brian, then I'll, I'll mention the third. Um, one of one, one of them is by Total Boat, and I believe it's called a, a marine varnish. And I, I hate to say it, I don't believe it is the easiest to apply because it is a relatively thick finish. The uh, I believe it's very um, similar to uh, Epiphanes, which is a marine finish as well. So these are things that are while they're they're not a hundred percent waterproof. Like they could, they they're not designed to be below the boat line or the water line on a boat. Um, they are a waterproof finish that uh, uh, on on woods that aren't going to be completely submerged in this. And and I think in your case, it's not going to be completely submerged, or at least not for a very prolonged period of time, like a like the bottom of boat would. Now they, it is a UV protection. And another option is Waterlocks Original, which I think is also a UV protected finish. Uh, don't quote me on that. I, I need to look that up again and probably mention it um, before the end of this question when it goes to you, uh, Brian. But Waterlocks Original is uh, also a brush on, paint on type finish. And um, it believe I believe it has like some teak oils and, and other things that make it uh, uh, UV protected uh, uh, and waterproof. Uh, and finally, what my father-in-law has used because he has um, this like old overhead luggage rack that he has on his um, on his truck, and he used these teak strips as support slats, and he used pure teak oil. Um, and it is something that you do have to apply, uh, maybe once every year or once every other year, but it keeps the wood moist, uh, prevents it from cracking, from being in the sun, yeah. uh, and is a really beautiful finish. I mean, those, yeah. those slats actually look really nice. Did um, he, Hey, we, did he use, do you use teak oil or tongue oil? No, I, let me, let me look at it. I'm pretty sure he used teak oil Let okay me the only here. reason i ask is okay disclaimer I, I i've never never finished a fishing net or anything like um liam is uh describing but mm-hmm. a lot of the research i had done seemed to mm-hmm. point to tongue oil mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. as a good finish for for that type of product for you know for a land land net not like we said not the kind that's going to go underwater and stay submerged Um, and then we, I know you mentioned total boat, but, um, one website forest to home recommended, uh, total boat halcyon varnish. Okay. And I'm not sure. Is that the same or is that different than the product you were? It's different. It it is different. It's different. Yeah. 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 So, so total boat, all total boat, a total boat also makes a teak oil. Okay. They also have a Danish teak sealer. Minwax has a teak oil. Watco has a teak oil, and these okay. are these are these are designed for outdoor furniture for things that are outside. Gotcha. Um, so so look into it. So try to figure out which of those probably is going to be the easiest to apply. And and like 
Eric Reeson said on the uh, on one of the podcasts uh, that Guy Dunlop used to do, uh, you know, test don't guess, right? Um, a lot of these things, I mean, while none of this stuff is cheap, it's not, you know, exuberant, right? Like it's, it's some of these finishes, a quart is like $40, and I imagine a quart would go quite a long way with some of these yeah. things, and particularly with, with these nets that you're making, Liam. So, uh, yeah. Brian, you, you got anything else other than the, the teak no, oil I would just, or tongue oil? I would just affirm that, yeah, I mean, anytime you can can um, further saturate the color of the walnut with like a, a walnut colored dye or, yeah. or a medium brown dye, um, that's going to help help um, slow down or, or minimize the impact of uh, the UV rays on on the walnut and turning it into that orangish color. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Brian, you got the next one, man. All right. Next one's for me. All right. Matthew D writes in that one of his close friends just had a baby. Well, congratulations to your friend. Congrats. Him, he, he wants to make the baby something and isn't sure what I don't have the time to make any piece of furniture, but I would like to make a little gift or two. Do any of you have ideas for small gifts that the baby could either use or play with or something they could keep for a long time? Thanks, Matthew. All right. I think I have the perfect recommendation for you, Matthew. And this isn't my idea. This is something that my dad does and he did for our kids. He, well, he made it for us as kids. He's made, he's made them for my kids, my wife and I's kids. And he makes them for his godchildren or, you know, the, um, the kids of his godchildren now that he's he's an old man and grandpa age love you dad um and all right so i know the suspense is killing everybody i haven't said what it is yet it is what a, is this thing what is it <laughs> it's very simple but it's a footstool so a real simple probably 16 inch wide um eight to ten inch deep and and only you know eight to ten inch tall footstool and it's just that perfect size that helps kids when they hit that toddler, you know, late toddler age to be just tall enough to get up there to wash their hands mm -hmm. yeah. in, the, in the bathroom. And the way he does it, it's a, it's a really cool design, but it's also really simple. So Matthew, I know you mentioned you don't have a ton of time. You don't want to do anything overly complex, but it's really just, I mean, it's three boards, right? You've got your two sideboards mm -hmm. and the the board that goes across that you're going to be standing on um, is just dadoed in to the other two. And he usually runs um, a piece down the length of that as well mm -hmm. uh, to for support um, and sometimes screws it in through the end and I'll plug that uh, as well. But then what he does, he doesn't just leave it rectangular on the sides. Yeah. He'll cut either a soft curve to the mm. top of those sides and then cut a handle in there on each side so that you can grab it with one hand, two hands. Um, and then he'll, he'll finish them natural. Like he made one recently in a beautiful, uh, curly maple, but on the sides he'll paint, you know, maybe a, like a little mountain scene, whatever, mm. something that goes well with the, the, um, shape that he's cut on top. I know on one of them he made for our kids, he cut um, the profile almost of a, a mountain range onto the top rather than the soft oh, nice. curve. And then did, he, he's a really, really good painter. 
and will then go and paint, you know, trees and some, a little bit of a nature scene on the side of each. So you're not, you're getting the beauty of, of the wood, but you're also getting, you know, a little splash of color there um, that, that coincides with the creative shape of it. So um, it's, yeah, I think that's something that, right. The baby's not going to be able to use right away, but I mean, we've had, our kids are six, 10 and 12 and they still use it. Um, whether it's in the bathroom or in their bedroom to reach like a top shelf of their closet or something like that. I mean, they're, they're incredibly useful and it's one of those things where every time you see it, you can't help but think of the person that made it for you. So yeah, that's my recommendation for the baby gift is a, uh, a footstool. So I, I really like that answer. That's a great answer because it made me think of my childhood. And when I was growing up, I also had a footstool, but it had a really neat feature to it. It What's was that? also a chair with a back on it oh. and the chair with the back, it was, on, it was hinged on a dowel. And then there were a couple of bigger dowels that were essentially stops for the back. And so okay. it would hinge, the back would hinge and the foot stool section of it is where you sat down. And then that back, right, would then fold down forward and it would create with the sides of the chair back would create the feet for the smaller step of the step stool. So it was a two step step stool. You'd fold it down and you'd step up so you could get to the sink and then you could fold it up and you could sit down on it with a chair back on it. Um, So, uh, you know, that, that would be a fairly simple thing I believe to make. Yeah. You could do dowels, uh, you could do uh, mortise and tenon. Uh, you could do a number of things, right? You could maybe simply just butt join it together and put screws in it if you wanted to. Although you mm-hmm. know you probably have to deal with some expansion contraction stuff, but you could do that. But it's a fairly simple project. And the great thing is, the more kids you have, or when you get older and you got grandkids, if you save those templates, right, you can just make them over again. So, so that would be a good idea. Now, when I had my first, my good friend, who's an amazing wood turner, he made a captive ring rattle. Okay. I saw some pictures of those online. Yeah. It was a little like three, four inch rattle. Um, and in fact, actually my, my son has been playing with it now, um, but it's made out of tiger maple, the same tiger maple that I made my uh, Maloof rocker out of, and it is the cutest little thing. And it's just really, it's finished with like some natural oil or beeswax or something, you know, so he can put his mouth all over and you don't worry about like polyurethane chipping out and him <laughs> eating it. Yeah. Um, not that it'll kill that. him or anything like that, but it's probably better off, right? That he's not eating those things. Um, but, but yeah, a captive, if you're into wood turning, maybe a captive ring rattle. Um, yeah, those are the two things I can think of. Any any other ones you think? Um, no, I just the thing I the thing I think that's kind of fun about the the footstool again is that you have a lot of different design options for how you shape you know the top of each side. Sure, um, sure. And then you get the option to have that as a canvas to you know do some painting on, and you can you can paint or you could even you know. If you were a wood burner, you could, you could burn, you know, do some wood burning into the side of it and create, you know, some sort of imagery there. 
um, but you get a lot yeah. of different options for how to be creative and really tailor it to uh, the child or to the family as a result. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. So Nice. Cool. All right. We all turn it back to you. All right. So this question is from Casey. Hey, all love the podcast. Been listening for quite a while and always ready to take notes. I have a bent lamination vacuum bag question. How do you handle epoxy squeeze out or any glue for that matter? My last question is how long do I leave a bent lamination in the bag? Is there a rule of thumb? I need a really rigid glue line for the tight three inch inside radius I am trying to achieve and I think epoxy is my best bet. I'd rather not use urea resin. I really appreciate the help. Well, Casey, I I actually do. I I hear you. You'd rather not use urea resin, but I think it might be the best choice and probably the glue that I would use for this. But you're not wrong in thinking that there are other options. There are. So one of which is epoxy. Absolutely. Epoxy is a perfectly fine uh, rigid glue line to use for this tight of a radius. Another glue that you might think of to think to use is polyurethane glue. Now I'm not a huge fan of polyurethane glue because it bubbles up and there's a lot of cleanup that you have to deal with it, but it is another alternative glue to use. And I believe a polyurethane glue has a fairly long open time. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I'll have to look it up, but it's been a while since I've used it. So I hadn't read the back of a label in, in, in a while. But how the other question is, how do I handle epoxy squeeze out? So there are a couple things that I do when I'm doing a bent lamination. First off, uh, if I'm creating a form, I'm not only doing the positive or like, excuse me, the negative of form. So if I had like a concave shape, I don't only have the concave section of it, but I also create um, the mating part for the convex portion of it. And what I'm doing there is I'm creating basically a bent lamination sandwich with a call, a flexible piece of whether it be wiggle board or some type of really flexible, flexible hardy board. And I line that with um, packing tape. Uh, Yeah, packing tape. I line it with packing tape. And then on the edges so that things don't become a wiggling, slopping mess is that I create these tabs. So I'm creating the form that is the width of what I need it to be. And then I create these tabs along the edge so that it keeps those uh, laminations from shifting off of the form itself. And again, I'm lining everything with packing tape. Uh, And that helps prevent the glue squeeze out from getting all over inside the bag. Um, You're going to get some, and some of it is going to get on the inside of the bag. And, you know, that is just the nature of the beast. But hopefully you're, you've got some type of uh, vacuum bag here that's going to, you know, really not not uh, adhere to that glue. Um, the other question, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Brian, is, is there a rule of thumb of how long? My, my feeling on it is, particularly if you're dealing with epoxy, which does not require that it is exposed to air but more so it is an exothermic reaction so it's giving off heat and when that heat is expelled is when the the epoxy starts to cure i allow it to be in that bag for i would have it overnight if not 24 hours and i wouldn't be worried about it if i was doing urea resin glue same thing 
polyurethane glue, same thing. 12 to 24 hours is what I would do. Um, now, cold press veneer glue, PVA glue, I've been told eight hours is, is about kind of the magic number as to how long you want to keep it in the bag. But I've left it in the bag for overnight and 24 hour, up to 24 hours. And yeah, the glue is still a little bit wet when it comes out of the bag because it has to be exposed to air to, to, to cure. But I don't know. It, it has never really been that huge of a problem for me. Still being slightly wet coming out of the bag still keeps its shape. What do you now? You've done some veneering, right? But you, have you done any bent lamination? I have not done any bent lamination. No. So what now? Now, when you veneered, though, you used heat lock, correct? I used heat lock most recently. Yeah, and that was for um, some two and three quarter inch wide uh, boards that I was going to use. That or I not was I did use to make a, a mirror frame, and I had some highly figured ash veneer that mm-hmm. I needed to um, apply to that. And yeah, I used the heat lock glue I got on veneersupplies.com and it worked, right. it worked beautifully. Unfortunately, I mean, it's great information, but maybe not so applicable yeah. in the Casey, sense. not going to help you with your uh, tight three-inch <laughs> insulation. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I do think epoxy is perfectly fine. Polyurethane, I would probably... I think I would probably try epoxy before I tried polyurethane glue. Yeah. I've used polyurethane glue before. And it, it can get pretty messy. And I, I don't know. I just hate the way it feels when it gets on stuff and I'm trying to clean it up. When I get on my hands, man, I just hate polyurethane glue on my hands. It's nasty. Yeah. We do you have a recommendation for the type of epoxy to use for a project like that? So I've used two different types of epoxy. I've used West Systems Epoxy. Okay. Great. Nothing wrong with it. And I've used Moss Epoxy, M-A-S. And I believe they're located out of Tennessee. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe I'm incorrect on that. But uh, Moss Epoxy, West Systems Epoxy. What I like about both of those systems, West Systems and Moss, is that there are variations in the hardener that you use so you can use a slow hardener a medium hardener or a fast hardener okay i would probably go either a medium or a slow i would not use the fast hardener because actually the fast hardener is fairly fast and Mm -hmm. i think if you're dealing with a bent lamination like that i would probably want to have close to as much open time as i could get and yeah. with that, I would probably go, I think tw- the medium is like a 20 minute open time. And I believe the slow is something like about a 40 minute, which is a good while. Um, I would probably go with the slow uh, hardener. And I can't remember what the West Systems has a numbering system uh, that goes along with it. But uh, it's like 201 or 202. I can't remember, uh, but just get the slow hardener. Um, that's what I recommend. Uh, I've used West Systems. I've used Moss, and both with with good success, uh, both as as filling for filling and for structural glue ups as well, like filling like small knots and voids and whatnot. I do that quite a bit. So, yeah. um, Casey, hope that helps. I think we're on to Brian with your last question. Is that right? 
is my this is my last one for for today. All right, this question is from Evan uh, Fus F U H S, and Evan says, "Gentlemen, thank you for all the time, etc., that you put into the show." Um, as a beginning, as a beginning woodworker, I'm curious about what projects you have done that helped you learn new skills or refine key foundational skills to progress along your woodworking journey. Woodworking journey. Perhaps there are some benchmark projects that take a woodworker from sloppy beginner to capable amateur and beyond towards fine craftsmen. Where do the common projects like a cutting board, a cabinet, a dining table, or something else fall along the spectrum? Thanks again for all you do in support of the woodworking community. Kind regards, Evan. So, um, the, the, the short answer, Evan, is that with every project you do, no matter what it is, um, use it as an, consider using it as an opportunity to learn a single new skill. Um, don't take too big of a bite. I've made that mistake before. Um, and try to learn six new skills in a project. A lot of times it's good to just take, you know, identify what is that next skill you want to learn and then figure out how do I, you know, whatever the next project is, if the project's already been decided for you, maybe the way in which you go about designing or building it, you incorporate uh, that new skill in and you practice it um, within that project or beforehand and then put that into play on the project. Um, as far as projects go, if if you're looking for one that's got a few different few different options for new skills you could take on, um, you could build uh, a small uh, hinged hinged lid uh, box with a with a, a veneered lid and an inlay um, solid wood inlay uh, on the lid that goes around the lid panel. Uh, to the edge. You could do it with mitered, um, mitered corner joints. And so possible skills you might be able to take on a, on a project like that, right? There's a certain skill. It's not much, but it is important to squaring up your um, miter gauge or your crosscut sled to squaring that up 90 degrees to the blade of your table saw. And when you build a mitered, mitered box like that. Um, if you're out of, if you're out of square or if you can't get your blade, you know, to the right 45 degree angle, it's going to compound itself and it's going to show up and you're going to have to practice getting things square. I think that in and of itself is, is a skill, um, that, that you can acquire, uh, through a project like that. Um, the other thing that can come with that is you can practice, uh, the, the four corner continuous grain match on a, on a box with mitered corners. And that'll involve resawing your board, flipping it and um, using the opposite ends uh, for, for your short and long pieces. Just look up continuous grain wrap on small wood box on, yeah. you'll find a million videos on how to do that. Well, yeah. So you can practice resawing. You can, um, you know, practice veneering for that for that top panel uh, for the lid. So you can practice veneering with that, um, and you can also practice uh, getting that applied to your box in such a way that it it ends up flush to the to the sides of the box. And once you've got all that flushed up, 
you can practice using, you know, either a handheld router or hand tools to kind of cut that, that little strip all the way around to, mm-hmm. to do a solid wood inlay, like an ebony inlay or a purple heart inlay or something maybe a little more exotic um, to, to bridge that gap between your veneered panel and the sides of the box. Nice. And then another skill, and you can kind of pick and choose from all these as you go through this project. Another skill that is a good skill builder is, uh, you know, put, cutting or mortising out for your hinges for the box, yeah. um, practicing cutting the top off of that, either on the table saw or bandsaw um, mm-hmm. or by hand for that matter. Um, and then uh, mortising out for your hinges and getting everything all squared up that way and doing that in a really clean and organized way. So that's that's a project that gives you about a dozen different skills that you could practice or acquire. Um, and it's also a small enough project where if you do mess up, you're not yeah. out, you know, a tremendous amount of money in the material and it it's not doesn't take too terribly long to to build it. So if you have to go back a step or redo a part, it's not the end of the world either. So Right on. Right. It was a little long-winded, as I as I can yeah. do. But we, what do you think? So, uh, so I love that idea. And if I can add to that, uh, there's this great book by Matt Kenny called "52 Boxes in 52 Weeks." I actually have that book. But the re- really, really, the the motif or the main theme that Matt Kenny is going through in that book is that while boxes and a lot of his boxes are are very simple designs, uh, for the most part, they're they're simple in nature. Uh, there are so many little design elements that you can change within the design of each individual box to make them slightly unique. And the great thing is you can test out all of those different designs because you're really not changing the overall design that much. So you can change the little things and test those things out. And they're great to helping improve your skills because essentially they're boxes they're small enough they're easier enough to tackle that you can tackle it in, within a week to to, uh, to add on to that totally separate project uh, one project that was a really great skill builder for me was my workbench uh, and the reason is because I actually had to think about like milling all the material I, I like to think of as more like the macro woodworking elements which are Okay, grain direction. How am I going to glue this up? Uh, uh, how am I going to mill these things up? Now I've got this top that's you know twenty four inches wide. How am I going to mill that up? What's the strategy behind that? So you start to get into those problem solving skills and seeing that hey, my shop has certain limitations because I, I imagine when you're first starting out and when you're first learning, you don't have a twenty four inch planer or a twenty four inch joiner. So you got to figure out yeah. a method or a way to get that thing flat. On top of that is the joinery. If you're doing traditional joinery, in my case, I did. It was mortise and tenon, and they were pinned. So I had to understand um, the tolerances of doing that type of joinery and what was an acceptable amount of tolerance for for a good, strong joint. And on top of that, understanding my own workflow of how I want my shop to be, uh, where I want those vices, what kind of things I'll be using that workbench for, and and having the forethought to design for that. So I really do think a workbench is, is a great project to really kind of get you to that next level because on a macro level, you're looking at things like 
proper milling techniques and how to put things together with the limited 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 tools that you have but also having the forethought in your design to make sure that you're sort of quote unquote as they say future proofing yeah. uh, your shop to make sure you don't build something that well I used it for a little bit but then I don't really use it anymore yeah. so hopefully that uh, those two projects might give you some insight into getting into that sort of intermediate level amateur level that you're good that idea. You're looking for. So, all right. I got the last question. This is from Jacob Rice. It says, Hey guys and other guys, <laughs> how many pocket holes screws do you actually need? I watch people on YouTube building stuff with pocket holes and nine times out of 10, I think to myself, surely that doesn't need that many pocket holes. I see guys building something like an end table or maybe a small piece of shop furniture and inevitably they use about 17 to 239 in this relatively small piece of wood. And I just don't understand it. Would love to hear your logic on what the general recommendation is, Jacob. All right. General recommendation on this. Ah, Jacob, you know, I don't use a lot of pocket holes, Jacob. But when I do use pocket holes, it's generally for like shop projects, shop furniture, basic cabinets. And a lot of times, honestly, even for cabinets, I'm using screws, uh, either brads or staples nowadays. Uh, if it's going to be something that is seen on the outside, um, you know, I might use some joinery like dominoes or biscuits. But my rule of thumb for pocket holes uh, so let's say you're putting like some type of edging or lipping, um, nosing, <laughs> as guy would say, uh, <laughs> or for like face frames or things like that for pocket holes. I, I think generally speaking, uh, I shouldn't say generally speaking, I would probably use a significant amount of pocket hole. Uh, I, I probably use more pocket holes for like face frame type stuff. So nosing, lipping, face frames. And my rule of thumb is every six to eight inches. I feel like that's that's sufficient uh, for keeping everything closed because, well, I mean, wood moves and sometimes wood moves between, you know, a certain distance of of uh, of a thin board, in this case, face frame. And I feel like six to eight inches is like kind of that happy medium of just enough. And I do the same thing. And so it's just a general rule, not just for pocket holes, but also for dominoes and for biscuits. So like, for instance, if I'm doing a board glue up, it's every six to eight inches that I'm putting a biscuit in just to help with alignment. If I've got a long board, what's, what's your rule? Do you use quite a bit of pocket holes or are you using something else? Similar? I usually, I'll use, I use pocket hole screws and face frames and, you know, cabinet, cabinet, uh, boxes, but I usually I'm using it in in conjunction with uh wood glue with yellow wood glue sure and if i'm going to be doing that um and if it's in an air you got to think about where you're gonna what type of force is going to be applied against you know this piece of furniture that i'm building you know if it's a cabinet it's probably mm -hmm. stationary fixed to a wall um it i don't go too heavy on on the pocket hole screws the only time i'll drop a third in there is if i've got a big enough span and really i just want the clamping pressure that that provides mm -hmm. you know if i'm going to have that wood glue as well especially if it's something that's going to be you know attached to a wall 
Um, sure. You get kind of that redundant fastener system going with, um, yeah. the, with so a glue and then a screw as well. So it would take quite a bit of, quite a bit to break both bonds or right. disrupt both of those. So, um, so the yeah. screw in your sense is more of a clamping just to hold it in place for that glue to cure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe a safety net as a secondary mechanical yeah. fastener if needed. Yeah, okay. And it would and it would be insufficient. It would be insufficient to only glue in yeah. in some of the settings I'm describing. But when you put the combination of of glue, you know, as long as I'm not using like a pre finished plywood, sure, because um, the sure. glue won't glue won't bond there, or at least not the uh, type bond too. Um, yeah, it, it becomes, yeah, it becomes just two of them together. I always say, screw it and glue it, baby. <laughs> screw it and glue it. So let me ask you this, Brian. For something that would be, see, and I guess that's a hard question because you really aren't in a situation where you would only use screws, right? You're always yeah. using glue. And it's the same for me. I'm always using glue in conjunction with those screws. Yeah. Um, and sometimes even glue screws and nails, like yeah. sometimes I do that too. Like nails, you know, nails just attack it and screws just to really secure it while yeah. that glue cures, you know, yeah. I mean, I've, it, I've grown, I've grown fond of using the domino in place of, um, pocket hole screws, particularly sure. in standalone pieces of furniture. I mean, I, I won't, you know, usually I'm only going to put a pocket hole screw in poplar or plywood. Um, mm -hmm. like I'm not going to try to pocket hole something in, walnut or white oak you know right, right. <laughs> yeah um yeah. i might yeah, have i mean i probably did it in the past but but now with i've got a df domino df 500 so yeah and there's nothing wrong with that i mean yeah. it's it's you know it's a personal preference I'd much, I'd much rather have you know where you can get up underneath it and you know not see any mechanical fasteners other than yeah maybe the the screws with the z clips that are holding the top down on a on a side table or entry table yeah um and some of it is just, I don't really enjoy using the pocket hole, uh, my Craig pocket hole jig. You know, it feels like it, it's loud. It's loud. It, you know, it's probably cause my drill bit's dull. And, <laughs> and, and what I don't, what I don't like about it, I'm not trying to go on a rant against pocket hole screws because trust me, I've, I've probably kept Craig in business with as many as I had, had to buy for all the cabinets. Um, <laughs> it, it just, it's hard to keep that board from slipping and moving and sliding on you yes. when that screw really bites and, and grabs now and you, that just is eternally frustrating for me. <laughs> now you, what, 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 uh, pocket hole system do, or, uh, we at, at work, castle or, castle. Yeah. So we yeah. have a castle pocket hole, um, uh, jig or whatever you would call it. The, the mechanic or the $5,000 machine that you yeah, know, you yeah. just pop it in there. Right. But you guys are pumping out a lot of ca like, uh, yeah, when we're, yeah. I mean, cabinets. it makes, it makes quick work of, you know, cabinet parts when we're putting together cabinets at work, Yeah, which we don't, I mean, we don't use it too much because we're mostly doing steel bases and solid wood tabletops. There's, there's not really a lot for that, but if we're doing bookcases or credenzas, right. Um, we'll use pocket holes where we can. Yeah for nailers, things like that, the yeah. sides. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right on, right on. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, that does it for the questions. Um, Brian, what you got going on? I think well, you kind of told me ahead of time. Yeah. I told you, I told you kind of <laughs> leading in. I, 
my I do the recording in my workshop and usually my my stool down here i've got to i got to brush it off and get all the dust off of it from the last yeah. time we recorded i came down here tonight and there it was clean as can be i i haven't made any sawdust in the last two weeks since we recorded last although if i can if i can share a sob story about myself Uh-oh. and why you should all why everybody should always do do as we say and not as we do Uh-oh. i finished i applied finish to the mirrors that i have poured oh, a ton totally, of hours into totally and i know that you you and guy both recommended you know get a test board sand it up like get it to the same grit like mix your dye solution like put it on there finish it make sure it's gonna turn out the color you want i said like, yeah yeah i got this guys don't worry um so i have three orange <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm laughing because I'm so mad about it. I oh orange, no! I have three orange mirrors hanging in my dining room right now. How did they and turn orange? Just the shellac? I mean, they're, they're, yeah, it's not. They're not orange, orange, but there's like there's like an undertone of orange to them. When I was going for like a light, warm brown color, <laughs> and they look oh, good man. down in the basement. And I took them upstairs in natural daylight. I am a bit dismayed at oh, my carelessness there. So I think I've got a solution for how I'm gonna how I'm gonna repair them. It's not it's it's only a mistake if you can't fix it. And I think I think I can fix it, but I'm I'm still in a a uh, period of grief and mourning um my self-induced misfortune and I still need to get them down and sand them back and and work on it. The problem with sanding them back is it's a it's a 40 second inch veneer that I've already sanded. Um, so there's not a whole lot there before I start sanding through the veneer. So it'll be delicate and not a lot of fun, but needs, needs to get done. So that's what I'm going to work on next. Oh, what boy. was me? Uh, do as I say, not as I do always finish a test piece ahead of time. Well, um, thank you for reminding me about that because I've got a whole bunch of walnut panels for this sideboard that I've been working on yeah. that I will have to, because there's unevenness, right. In color. Yep. You do, you get it in walnut. Mm-hmm. It's just sort right. of the way it is, right? You get uneven as board to board. So uh, I'm going to have to, t- um, thank you for reminding me. I've got to test go. the die. Before I, yeah. Test the die before you put it on the whole stinking thing, right? Yep. yep. Test it on a small piece and I've got plenty of small pieces. So I do need to do that. Thank you for reminding me. I do need to do that. But like I said, from the last episode, I finished the legs, right? So the little, mm-hmm. you know, the little short stubby legs. You remember the drawing that I had? I got, had these yeah. like sort of like nice one and a half inch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so um, I had gotten all that done. I, I uh, what is it? I, I'd split the uh, the round tenon to allow it to be wedged or. Okay. Yeah, wedged. Yeah, wedged tenon. Um, and I cut the hole within the board that will uh, that will hold those legs, and I ha- I devised a way to attach the leg assembly to the lower panel, which is essentially the sideboard bottom. Yep. And uh, a- as you can tell, the uh, based on the drawing that I showed you, it's a cross grain situation, right? So you've got a board going. Uh, uh, from front to back of the sideboard, but then you have the bo- bottom of the sideboard going the length of the sideboard. So yep. that's a cross grain situation. So you can't glue that, right? So I'm attaching it with screws. There is a through screw in the front, and then there's an elongated slotted hole in the back for another screw. Okay. So I did that as well. I machined that out, and um, and then I, 
uh, you know, I'm a huge lover of threaded inserts because I think it gives it a nice clean look and is less likely to strip out if you use a wood mm -hmm. screw. So I'm, I always use threaded inserts. So I installed those and, um, you know, I just got to get, I've got to put the round over on that, uh, uh, that, uh, bottom assembly, uh, that board that holds the legs itself. Got to put those roundovers on. And I, I really got to get started working on back on the um, China cabinet. Man, I've just been kind of letting that slide. So I got to do yep. that and I got to finish yep. those doors up. Uh, I've got all the muntins and everything done. I just got to put the rabbits into them. Yep. Um, but yeah, that's what I've got going on. And this next week. Um, oh, by the way, I went to uh, Orange Beach oh, uh, recently. Nice. So this past week, as you can see, my face is completely peeling i look like uh you know hannibal lecter's first victim <laughs> my, my for, for, for everybody that's listening to our audio only podcast i can assure <laughs> you it's quite it's quite the scene i'm, I'm horrific <laughs> uh no i i it's i'm I'm, beast. I'm so dark but like my i fell asleep in the sun so we we just got back from orange beach yesterday oh man it was a well-needed vacation but i fell asleep in the sun and uh, on the beach and my face is just peeling and it mm. looks ridiculous. I look like an old leathery skinned man. It's terrible. But anyway, so. thank goodness you guys don't have video. Um, uh, yeah. So, th so yeah, so that's what I've got going on. And uh, yeah, I think that does it for the show. Uh, we would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. Please remember, this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions that you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com, or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And of course, we always want to make sure yeah, include your name so we know who to thank and we know who to reference when we're talking about the questions. And you can reach me and you can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. Brian, where can we find you? I am not on the social media thing, but I do have a page on simplecove.com at Brian Schmidt. A couple projects uh, posted there. All right. Well, thank you. And, uh, Talk to you in a couple and look forward to seeing Guy back on here. I know. Can't wait to have him back. I've seen him yeah. at work, but can't can't get him lined up on the schedule here. So he'll be back next pod, everyone. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.